0: Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 47, Philip Conseil. When Philip the Handsome came of age and took over direct rule of the previously Burgundian but now Habsburg territories of the Low Countries in September 1494, his accession, marked the first time since the death of Charles the Bold in 1477 that a native and natural-born male prince had filled the position. The last 20-odd years of crises had bled his lands and peoples dry, physically, mentally, and financially. Across the board of those societies, people were desperate for a period of prolonged peace. Despite this, there were still a couple of major issues which were lingering, and which, if dealt with improperly, could lead to another outbreak of war. These were the situation in Gelders, whereby Maximilian and Charles of Egmont were both walking around saying, I am the Duke of Gelders, as well as a good old-fashioned conspiracy, in which Margaret of York and Maximilian both pointed to a random Flemish dude and said, he is the King of England. This resulted in a mutually detrimental trade conflict between England and the Habsburg Low Countries. Philip's first great test as Duke of Burgundy would be discerning between the interests of his lands and subjects and those of his ever-ambitious father. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands. I am the king of this podcast. No, I am! Rebel, rebel, rebel. We are going to begin today by backing up slightly and returning to the story of Charles of Egmont in Helders. In the last episode, we saw how Charles had returned to Helders, quickly won the support of the majority of the territory, tried to go over Maximilian's head and get Frederick to recognize him as Duke of Helders, and in April 1493 was able to take a castle called Puderoyan. You may recall that we departed from Helders at that point to go speak about the wider goings-on that led to the Treaty of Saint-Li being signed between Maximilian Philip the Handsome and Charles VIII. Well, now we're going to go back to Helders and take a look at how that treaty affected, or perhaps didn't, circumstances there and see how the chasm between Duke Charles and the Burgundian Habsburg dynasty grew wider and deeper and their relationship became irretrievably broken. The castle of Puderoyen is located nearby the town of Zaltbommel and lies on the Meuse River, roughly in between the towns of Horenkheim and Denbosch. Puderoyen had been in the possession of Lady Johanna van Herlar, but had been controlled by her husband, Peter van Heemert, a burgundian habsburg loyalist who had married Johanna in 1458. On April 14, 1493, on the orders of Charles of Egmont, a Gelderian nobleman by the name of Gerard van Vierdenburg had managed to wrest control of the castle. Van Vierdenburg then proceeded to do exactly what people in those sort of situations tended to do, which was to rob and steal everything he could from the castle. He was joined in this effort by people from nearby villages who apparently couldn't resist the temptation – to go and take whatever they could from Buderoin. According to the book A Fantao Chronicle, villagers from nearby Hervainen stole, quote, eighty horses, fifty oxen, forty pigs, and numerous sheep. End quote. What exactly happened to Peter von Hemot is unclear. Some sources say he was jailed, some say he was killed, others say that he fled from Helders, Whatever the truth may be, it doesn't really matter for us, because the only relevant fact for our story is that Peter van Hemert was gone, not to return. His wife, Johanna von Herlar, survived, though she was stripped of control over her castle and the lands by Charles of Egmont, the new self-styled Duke of Helders. We know this happened to her because a few years later, Joanna wrote a detailed letter of complaint to Emperor Maximilian and to the Kammergericht, the imperial court, in an effort to get her stuff back. In this letter, she listed exactly what was taken from Puderoin Castle and what it was all worth. The list includes gold and silver jewellery, gems, pearls, velvet clothes, also embroidered with gold and silver which belonged to her, her husband and their children, 60 beds, 200 cushions. I don't think I've ever seen 200 cushions in my life. Carpets, blankets, linen, cooking utensils, grain, meat, salt, butter, cheese, and other foodstuffs. Weapons such as bows and arrows, gunpowder, sulfur, arquebuses, cannons, animals, a bunch of loot from the chapel, as well as the paperwork for her incomes, rents, and loans. In total, she estimated that the value of goods stolen from her was about 14,500 Rhenish guilders, and her loss of income annually from her rents was about 3,500 guilders. It's a fascinating insight into the runnings, content, and costs of a relatively minor estate, and shows that Joanna von Herla had definitely kept a close eye on everything that was going on under her watch. Despite Johanna's best efforts to get Puderoyne back, Duke Charles instead gave it to her son-in-law, Johann van Rossum, who was married to her daughter, Johanna van Hemert. That's right, Johanna, who we've been talking about, had a daughter named Johanna, who was married to Johann. Their first son was also called Johann. It's incredibly confusing. Just think of different names, people. They did eventually think of another name, and their second son they called Martin van Rossum. At this point, he was still an infant, but he is going to become one of the most feared military figures in the Low Countries in the early 16th century. So, here's some foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. In her letter of complaint, Joanna mentions by name three men who Charles of Egmont had made captains of Puderoin. Most important was Hendrik van Enzer, aka Snellwind or Fastwind, aka Snadevent, Cuts the wind from Pouteroyen. Snaedevent would remain a thorn in the side of Burgundian Habsburg interests in the region for over a decade. The capture of Pouteroyen was so important for Charles of Egmont because its strategic location meant the troops loyal to him would be able to make raids into neighboring Holland and Brabant. Its location along the Meuse River also meant that they could blockade or harass shipping along the waterways. That's what a lot of this conflict is going to look like in the following decades. Small raids and blockades, rather than huge set-piece battles and sieges. With the loss of Paderborn, the remaining bastions of Habsburg power in Chelders were the castles of Bar and Buren, which were controlled by Charles of Egmont's second cousin Frederick. Lord of Eiselstein, and Jan Third, Count of Egmont, as well as one of the castles in Beist, which was held by a man named Cornelis Peak. Now the story of the Pick brothers at the House castle of Beist is a great example of how families could be torn apart when they chose opposing sides in these dynastic power struggles. There were three Peak brothers, Valraven, Cornelis, and Heisbert, Valraven supported Charles of Egmont, while Cornelis and Heisbert remained loyal to the Habsburgs. Valraven Peak had held the House castle at base until in 1492, with support from Habsburg-allied Hollandic troops, Cornelis Peek was able to capture both the castle and his brother Valraven. From there, the Habsburg-allied soldiers caused havoc around the countryside. In 1493, heisberg Peak plundered the nearby Marienwerder Abbey, stealing everything that his men could carry away from the monks, and then burning the rest. The chronicles of that abbey put it this way: quote, "Afterwards, the monastery was completely desolate; the religious having fled, so that in six years we obtained little of the rents. Our cattle were carried off, our yards were burned, and many damages were inflicted. All of which, to list." would grow into a great volume, end quote. What he's basically saying is that he couldn't be bothered writing a list. Should have got Johanna van Heela. She, she knew her way around a list. After this, in an attempt to restore order, Charles of Egmont ordered the beast be put to siege, under which it remained for 17 weeks. During a raid from beast, Heisbert Peak was captured by Charles of Egmont, who then could use him as a bargaining chip. When Cornelis Peak. Refused to surrender, the Hoge House abased. Charles of Egmont had his brother, Heisbert, beheaded. Shortly thereafter, though, Valravenpik, the one who supported Charles and who was still imprisoned by his remaining brother, was found mysteriously dead in his cell at the Hoge House. The conflict in Helder's was growing more and more violent, bringing to mind that old civil war epithet about families being divided. In this case, divided families were dividing family members. Evidently, proponents on both sides had hardened in their resolve to keep on fighting. A month after the capture of Pudaroyen, the Treaty of Sandy was signed between Emperor Maximilian, Duke Philip, and King Charles VIII of France, which, as you will recall, explicitly mentioned Charles of Egmont as an ally of Charles VIII. Although this might have looked comforting on paper. It also meant that Maximilian and Philip could stop worrying about the immediate threat which France had long represented, sort out their internal affairs, and perhaps now pay a little bit of closer attention to what's going on at Helders. One thing which is probably important to iterate here is that Helders wasn't one contiguous territory. It was actually divided by the major rivers into four so-called quarters. Three of these The Zutphen Quarter, the Veluwe Quarter, and the Nijmegen Quarter were pretty much next to each other. The fourth one, though, called the Upper Quarter, meaning upstream along the Meuse River, lay to their south, and was separated from the others by a little bit of the Duchy of Clevesberg. In 1492, Maximilian had managed to make alliances with the Duke of Clevesberg, as well as the Duke of Julich. This meant that Gélders wasn't just surrounded by hostile powers loyal to the Habsburgs, it was literally intersected by one as well. Perhaps wary of the vulnerable position this put him in, Charles of Egmont went on an extended trip to France around the time the Treaty of saint was signed. Apparently, he had hoped to meet Maximilian and Charles VIII in person to try to sort out the whole mess. But after the signing of the treaty, both Maximilian and Charles VIII turned their attention towards Italy, and didn't meet him at all, leaving Charles of Egmont to look for whatever help he could find in France. He travelled to Bourbon and Liège, as well as to Nancy, where he met with his twin sister, Philippa, and her husband, René II, Duke of Lorraine. Unfortunately, despite all of these efforts, nobody was really prepared to do much for him, worrying about getting on the wrong side of either Maximilian or Charles VIII, Charles of Egmont left France disappointed, but returned home to discover that the man he most hoped to meet, Maximilian, was actually in Gelders with his army. What a nice coincidence. In July 1494, Maximilian had returned to the Low Countries to visit his son Philip for the first time since becoming emperor. In March of that year, Max had also gotten married for the third time since we have met him, this time to Bianca Maria Svoza daughter of a now-deceased Duke of Milan. Presumably, Maximilian had wanted to show his wife the lands he had ruled, well, until recently, and where he had so many happy memories. His children, his wife falling off a horse, all those Flemish revolts, being kidnapped and held. Remember he was kidnapped and held in Bruges? He also had to formally hand over the government to his son and successor, Philip, and probably also wanted to palm off responsibility for the whole mess in Helder's to him as well. We'll discuss this more later on in the episode, but Philip wasn't exactly keen on doing anything which might upset his irritable French neighbor at this point, so getting involved in Helder's was very low on his priority list. So Maximilian turned to his trusty lieutenant, Albert of Saxony, and together they decided to attack Helder's from either side. Albert of Saxony took the town of Nicaric in the Velua quarter on the 18th of July, while Maximilian attacked the town of Ruamond in the upper quarter. On brand for Maximilian, who was notoriously constantly broke, his mercenaries at Ruamond weren't prepared to take the town until they were paid for their services. His reputation had preceded him. They then entered negotiations with the town that they were about to attack, demanding 10,000 guilders to not do so. Ruramond, however, very sensibly told them that they weren't going to pay an army outside its walls when the army's own lord and master couldn't pay them either. As a result, through these failed fiscal tactics, the siege just fizzled out. Maximilian's armies made an attempt to cross the Rhine at the town of Elton, but they were pushed back twice by armies from Zutphen. So this was the situation in Helders when Charles of Egmont returned from France. He wasn't quite faced with an existential threat. I mean, Maximilian's armies had been pretty ineffectual, but still it wouldn't have been pleasant to have hostile soldiers now harassing his lands. With help from his uncle, John of Chalon, the Prince of Orange... Negotiations were arranged between Charles of Egmont and Maximilian. This meeting was held at Ravenstein and was attended by Maximilian and Charles, as well as John of Chalon, as well as envoys from the Duke of Lorraine and the Archbishop of Cologne. It presumably also included the person who was hosting it, the Lord of Ravenstein, Philip of Cleves. You know, our Philip of Cleves. He had long been a friend of Charles of Egmont and now... Not even two years after his own prolonged war with Maximilian had wrapped up, Philip of Cleves was now hosting negotiations to reach peace in this one. The result was a treaty signed on the 18th of August, 1494. By the terms of this treaty, Charles would not have to return the castle of Puderoyen, and towns that had been lost, such as Nykerk, would be given back to him. Although four towns in Helders, Thiel, Erkelenz, Duisburg, and Wageningen, each of them in a strategic location on one of the four quarters of Helders would be given to the Archbishop of Cologne. Hostilities between both sides would be put on hold, and the issue of who is actually the Duke of Gelders would be decided upon by a meeting of the Prince-Electors of the Empire, which would take place within a year. Just as a brief tangent, and seemingly completely not connected, but very much so, in the months before and after this treaty, July and September, 1494 another treaty was being signed this one between Spain and Portugal it was called the Treaty of Tordesillas it was the treaty that divided the not Europe part of the world by a line on a map drawn by the Pope which ran a bit west of the Cape Verde Islands according to the Pope Spain got everything west of the line and Portugal got everything to the east of it This won't be immediately relevant for us, but it's going to become relevant really soon, and it was happening at this time, so just wanted to point it out. Anyway, back to Helders. Neither side particularly held firm to the pledges which they had made in the agreement at Ravenstein, and the fighting between armies of Helders and Habsburg loyalists never really ended. After the treaty was signed, apparently Maximilian brought Charles of Egmont to the walls of Nijmegen, which is just next to Ravenstein, and which was loyal to Charles, and completely, pointlessly opened fire upon the city. Disgusted by this, Charles left without a word. Any remaining loyalty he had to the Habsburgs had been broken. Maximilian complained almost immediately that followers of Charles of Egmont weren't keeping the peace in Helders. Meanwhile, Max never gave Nykerk back to Charles, also in defiance of the treaty they had just signed. In March 1495, Charles was able to win it back by force of arms, though. He then lay siege to the castle of Bar, pummeling it with cannons for six weeks, reducing the walls to rubble before capturing it on Ascension Day 1495. Charles of Egmont ordered that the masons of Zutphen and Duisburg dismantle the entire castle of Bar piece by piece until it was reduced to its foundations. So much for a ceasefire, eh? about the only part of the treaty which was taken seriously was that the issue of succession in Helders would be discussed later by the Prince-Electors. In July 1495, the electors did meet at the Diet of Worms, which definitely sounds more like what a bird would eat than a meeting of the most pompous lords in the German Empire. During this meeting, representatives of Maximilian and Charles of Egmont argued back and forth, nitpicking their way through every single detail of the backstory of what had happened in Helders over the last couple of decades. Going back to the beef between Arnold and Adolf, through to Charles the Bold buying the rights to it and invading, Mary of Burgundy instructed Maximilian on her deathbed to give Charles of Egmont back what had just been taken from him. It's almost as if they needed a podcast just to go through it all. Maximilian and Charles's representatives were both able to show why their man was the rightful Duke of Helders. It was clear that neither side was going to budge from their position, and also that neither side actually wanted the issue to be decided upon by the prince electors. Charles had most likely only agreed to it to get a break in the hostilities in Helder's and to have an open forum in which to air his grievances and win over sympathy within the empire. He must have known, though, that the chances of this process going in his favor were slim to none. Maximilian, on the other hand... Wanted to have this issue decided not by these electors, but rather in the Reichskammergericht, the imperial court, in which he was, essentially, the judge. Yes, that definitely sounds like a great place for an impartial decision to be made, Max. When this impasse couldn't be worked through, Charles's representatives departed from Worms. It seemed pretty much inevitable from this point the full scale war between Charles of Egmont and Maximilian could not be avoided. But luckily for Charles, though, as emperor, Maximilian had a lot more to focus on than just Helders, and for now he became distracted by issues in Italy and turned his attention from the north to the south. So instead of war, surprisingly, in September 1495, Maximilian just charged Charles with breaking the peace in the empire and summoned him to appear before the imperial court in frankfurt understandably unwilling to travel into the lion's den charles just refused to do so in september 1496 a second summons was sent for him to appear at the imperial court this time to do with the case which johanna had brought up with her complaints about everything that had been stolen from puderoyan castle she has a list once again, Charles of Egmont refused to appear, instead sending a very long and elaborate letter which once again laid out all the atrocities which had been committed by Maximilian and his lieutenant in Helders over the previous two years and claiming that it was unsafe for him or his representatives to travel so deep into such hostile territories. Charles pleaded for the Pope Alexander VI to send a legate to arbitrate in the case, and ended the letter saying that he and the rest of Helders would defend their land from Maximilian as strongly as possible. And so, poised in that defensive crouch, claws out, is where we are going to leave Helders for today. As we have seen, despite signing the Treaty of Son Maximilian had been unable to subdue Charles of Egmont in Helders by force of arms. He had then tried to use the legal power of the German Empire, which, remember, carried a lot of weight and prestige in Helders, but after two years of Maximilian and Albert of Saxony's troops plundering and looting villages, abbeys, farms, and whatever else they could get their hands on throughout Helders, the attitude within Helders had inexorably hardened against them. But also, the tides of politics across the continent had changed over the last couple of years. Maximilian's son Philip was now of age and ruling in his own right and the son did not necessarily share priorities with the father as such a kind of uneasy truce would settle over Gelders for a couple of years with the odd raid here and there but it will allow us to leave Gelders for today with this stalemate lingering over the province speaking about stale here comes an ad break On the other side, we will have a look at how Philip had handsomely plopped himself upon the world stage. Welcome to the welcome back on the 9th of September 1494 Philip the handsome made his first joyous entry into the town of Lofen to be officially recognized in his capacity as the no longer under the regency of his father nor anybody else Duke of Brabant in the first years of his rule we see that the decade plus struggle over his regency had actually been lost fairly early on by Maximilian the real game it seemed in those early years had not been about who was to rule in his stead while he was young, but who was to determine, mold, and direct his education and outlook. The victors in this, in the first six years of his reign, had evidently been the upper nobility of the Low Countries, as they had managed to take control of his life and set his course thusly. In the words of 19th century Wallonian historian Henri pirenne in his history of Belgium quote Maximilian who was himself too busy with his many designs journeys and wars had left the education of his son who lived in Mechelen, to Belgian gentlemen who bred their pupil according to their own ideas and as if he would never have to rule other regions than the Netherlands his tutors had only seen in him the head of the Burgundian house knowingly forgetting that he was also heir to Austria. He had been carefully removed from the influence of Albert of Saxony, and he had not even been taught German. They had deliberately ignored all issues that were immaterial to the Netherlandish domains. At his coronation, he is alien to his father and to the house of Habsburg. He is still just a Duke of Burgundy, or as such, the national prince of the Netherlands. End quote. The cabal of court advisors was led by the Princes of the Blood to the Archduke, high nobility Golden Fleeces, who, even though some of their clans had absconded from Burgundy following the death of Charles the Bold, had nonetheless managed to resume an influence and level of control over the new prince. We should recognize some of their names. The Croys, the Lalangs, they were both amongst them. It was not just the upper nobility who formed important components of the government that Philip had been raised to head. All across Europe, the generational effects of universities were being seen. A career in the civil service was now a viable track for lower or even non-aristocrats with nimble minds, instincts for opportunity, and a willingness to do the dirty work of bureaucracy, as long as their families or a benefactor could pay for it to start with, of course. In the Low Countries, this was men like Father-Son Combo, the two Jean-Carondelais, Thomas de Plaine, who became the Chancellor of the Grand Council under Philip, and Jeroen van Busladen, his tutor. All of these are names worth remembering. Philip's decisions and behavior reflected his adherence to the advice of his council, although his tendency to rely heavily on his counselors has been called sensible, at the time, it also earned him a reputation for being too easily led, and he was given the nickname Qua Conseil, meaning literally, Believes counsel. A Spanish ambassador, Fuenza Salida, put it that he was, quote, of a good heart, but the plaything of his environment, led drunk from banquet to banquet and from lady to lady, end quote. Perhaps it was the Venetian ambassador, though, who summed it up the best. He looked at Philip's position, being accountable to the high lords of the southern low countries, but also having great obligations to, and sharing tendencies with, his ever-ambitious father, and described it as labyrinthine. Philip's joyous entries throughout Brabant and Holland in 1494-95 also reflected his attempts to strip back the expanded privileges which the states and towns had managed to win from his mother, mary of burgundy with the great privilege of 1477 in the chaos of the last 17 years since the death of charles of the bold the states cities and craft guilds had grown in power to the detriment of the ducal government philip recognized that as a native son ruling in a new era of peace after protracted war the complaints which had been leveled at his father as being an outsider with interests opposed to everyone else's could not be applied to him. As such, Philip immediately began coalescing and centralizing power within the ducal court again. When he made his joyous entry into Troudenberg in Holland, Philip explicitly only agreed to the same terms that Philip the Good and Charles the Bold had done, and ignored all the extra rights, powers, and privileges which had been part of the Great Privilege. Farewell, Great Privilege. It's been great. A real privilege. Showing that he had perhaps learned some of the lessons dealt out to his predecessors, he did, however, leave the option for these rights to be restored. To quote A.G. Yonkais in his essay, The Great Privilege of Holland and Zealand, quote, For the rest, Duke Philip, mindful of the merits the Dutch had acquired towards his father, declared himself ready to comply with their wishes by his own privilege, insofar as these were reasonable and did not conflict with his highness. This neatly fits in with the image of Philip which we just spoke about, his willingness to take counsel from others. But it was also clear who was in charge. In a letter to the Chamber of Audit of Brussels in 1496, Philip wrote the following of their dealings with the states of Brabant, quote, You are not under them, but under us. They have nothing to command you, quote. In the words of Königsberger, whose work is a well we keep going back to for good reason, Philip's policy was, quote, What it had been since the days of the Duke's great-grandfather, Philip the Good, peace with France, accommodation with Helder's, and cooperation with the estates. End quote. Cooperation, sure, but under the Duke's terms. However, due to this Duke's tendency to Qua conseil that also meant under the terms of the high nobility. So this was the labyrinth that Philip was in as the new boss of the Low Countries. Ding, ding, ding. Would you look at that, though? Here is some low-lying fruit indeed. Speaking of the word boss, well, I simply bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Well. Very likely he did. But for those who didn't, the English word boss comes from the Dutch word baas. Originally, baas referred to a Dutch captain of a ship. According to the online etymology dictionary, the word morphed into boss and became used in the United States as a reflection of a society that saw itself as egalitarian and free from feudalism and class divide, but which also ran on slave labor. The word master was too connected with enslavement, and so another word was needed for the general populace to use. So naturally, they borrowed the Dutch one, and Bas became boss. So there you go. Boss. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Now we've been tracking the political history of the Low Countries for long enough that we should all be able to check off some major bones of contention and issues that Philip was now also inheriting. Domestically, these were the economy and the currency crises, as well as dissent in Helders. Internationally, if he was to maintain the continued satisfaction and support of the towns and the different states, his priority was the keeping of commercial peace with England and military peace with France. On top of this though, he was in a particular position as being the actual son of the emperor which brought a bunch of other obligations and expectations also his father was maximilian so good luck dealing with that loose unit as a father in line with his advisors general approach of keeping everything rosy i.e not just waging war all the time one of the first big issues was getting the english monarch back on side we haven't gone into why the english monarch was somewhat irked with philip's family because the full story needed to be told and the time simply was not right until now that is now it is the time for the story of perkin warbeck we need to go back a couple of years however you may recall from episode 41 in bruges that in 1487 a young english lad called lambert simnel had been held aloft by Yorkists and proclaimed to be king edward v one of the two princes in the tower who had most likely been assassinated by their uncle while still in prison but whose bodies had never been seen publicly. The Lambert Simnel endeavor came crashing down with the Battle of Stoke Field in 1487, which also marked the beginning of the Tudor period in English history with Henry Tudor becoming Henry VII. As we told you in that episode, Margaret of York's entire family had pretty much just lost everything and everyone over the previous two decades as the sole survivor she was obliged to keep the struggle going whenever there was hope and so she had been eagerly involved in trying to put the Simnel pretender on the throne not four years after it had failed another pretender emerged this time it was a bloke by the name of perkin warbeck in 1490 warbeck had emerged in burgundy now under French administration, claiming to actually be Richard of Shrewsbury, the Duke of York, and the second of the two doomed Tower Princes. The many and diverse details of this story are muddied and conflated across the sources, and the fact that much of the info was later garnered from Warbeck via torture doesn't help, nor does the later account of Francis Bacon, who almost goes as far as putting the whole affair on Margaret of York. But essentially, following his, uh, Coming out as Richard Shrewsbury, Yorkists around Europe began to spread word that the Duke of York was alive, and as such, the rightful King of England. Both Margaret of York in Meekerland and Charles VIII in France gave tacit support for this. At one stage in 1491, Warbeck turned up in Cork Island, where he was recognized and hailed as Richard by a bunch of people, including the Mayor of Cork himself, before he returned to France. The English Tudor king, Henry VII, began to take this as a serious threat. He sent an invasion force of 12,000 men to Calais. This invasion was prevented by the signing of the Treaty of Etape, which we mentioned in the previous episode. This was one of those three big treaties that Charles VIII had made with the monarchs of England, Spain, and Burgundy. Among other things, in the Treaty of Etap, he agreed to cease supporting York supporters and insurgents. Warbeck was promptly kicked out of France, and the Yorkers who had been behind his rise and were pulling the strings, had to find somewhere else he could find sanctuary until the time was right. Thankfully, in Margaret of York, there was one remaining member of the main York family left, and that detail pretty much meant she was obliged to do whatever she could to try to recover her family's lost fortunes, even if she knew, and she must have known, that Perkin Warbeck was just some Flemish kid wearing fancy clothes. When Warbeck rocked up in the Low Countries then, Margaret welcomed him as her long-lost nephew. While in Brabant, he went about gathering support from exiles who had fled to the continent from England and was even able to win the support of King James IV of Scotland for an invasion of England. Within a year, Maximilian had become the emperor, and so by this move, even though Warbeck had lost the formidable support of the French monarch, he had effectively swapped it for that of the emperor. The Treaty of Etape between France and England had been a dagger in the heart of Maximilian's political designs and ambitions in Brittany. Even though Max would later agree to the Treaty of saint which brought peace between Burgundy and France, he remained agitated by Anglo-French amity. As such, he backed Margaret in her support for the Perkin-Warbeck conspiracy. Henry VII in England did not take this placidly. On the 18th of September 1493, Henry slapped a trade embargo on the Low Countries. He banned all English merchants from conducting any trade in Antwerp, which by now was the biggest and most important port in the region, or anywhere else in the Netherlands, instead requiring that all trade be done with Calais. This was a drastic move which was intensified in May 1494 when the exact same measures were put in place in the other direction. Trade between England and the Low Countries ground to a halt, much to the displeasure of merchants, town citizens, pretty much everyone who wasn't playing the political power game. Remember that pretty much all of the wool which was necessary for the manufacturing of cloth across Flanders and Brabant came from England. Maximilian invited Perkin Warbeck to Frederick III's funeral in December 1493, and there greeted him as the King of England. It is extremely unlikely that he or anybody else actually believed in the veracity of these claims. There is a good letter, dated a bit later on August 10th, 1494, from the English king Henry VII to an ambassador to the French king called Macado. The letter tells us that Charles VIII had gone so far as to offer naval support for England to defend its shores, as well as forbidding his subjects to participate in whatever Warbeck coup attempt was coming. Henry says that he is not so concerned about Warbeck at this stage, but is flourishing in his praise of the French king's efforts. Quote, in regard to the said Garçon, the king makes no account of him because he cannot be hurt or annoyed by him, for there is no nobleman, gentleman, or person of any condition in the realm of England who does not well know that it is a manifest and evident imposture, similar to the other which the Duchess Dowager of Burgundy made when she sent Martin Zwart over to England, we spoke about that, and it is notorious that the said Garçon is of no kin to the late King Edward, but is a native of the town of Tournai, and son of a boatman, who is named Warbeck. End quote. As to Max's catering to the charade, Henry's thoughts are pretty clear on this as well. Quote, Therefore the subjects of the king, talking about Maximilian, necessarily hold him in great derision, and not without reason and it should so be that the king of the Romans should have the intention to give him assistance to invade England, which the king can scarcely believe, being that it is derogatory to the honor of any price to encourage such an impostor. He will neither gain honor or profit by such an undertaking, and the king is very sure that the said king of the Romans and the nobility about him are well aware of the imposition, and that he only does it on account of the displeasure he feels at the treaty made by the king with his said brother and cousin, the King of France, So when Philip was ascending to the various thrones of the Habsburg Netherlands in late 1494, this was the other major issue he inherited. The specific Warbeck and embargo situation was really one that was largely of his father's making. Maximilian was a man who had proven himself time and time again, to be unable to understand or pander to the interests, qualms, and concerns of towns and cities in the Low Countries. But as we looked at earlier, Philip had been educated and moulded by the high nobles of the Burgundian lands. Despite his obligations to his pater familiars, Philip's education and counsel guided him to put his domestic priorities ahead of the dynastic and imperial ambitions of his father. In February 1495, Philip's Council had already begun to advise him that this whole Perkin-Warbeck thing really had to be dealt with, otherwise there was a real risk of yet another revolt in Flanders. Things were made a little bit easier when, on the 3rd of July 1495, having been helped by Margaret of York, Perkin-Warbeck disastrously landed in Kent, England, and his army suffered huge losses and he was forced to take refuge in Scotland. It took another year or so, but with Warbeck now somebody else's problem, from the midst of the crippling and mutually disadvantageous trade embargoes, a new treaty was fashioned. It became known as the Intercursus Magnus and was ratified in February 1496. The terms of the treaty made it easier for English wool traders to get their stuff sold in the crucial Habsburg Low Country ports while fisheries from the low countries were given more rights. A lot of it grants of reciprocated benefits to merchants from both regions, and it brought more money into the coffers of everybody. Its ratification was, from a low Country's point of view, a way more sensible decision than dressing some phlegm up as a dead prince and sending him to invade England. And that is where we will leave it for this episode. Philip has been handed the reins and all the turmoil that goes with the job. Being guided by his native council more than by his obligations to his father, decisions made in the English trade war reflect the native inclinations, which would become a hallmark of his rule's early years. This same willingness to pursue local agendas rather than his father's dynastic ambitions would also lead to the prolonged stalemate which was now falling over Helder's where war between Max and Charles seemed inevitable, but which Philip was unwilling to join. However, as we shall see in future episodes of History of the Netherlands, by the end of his admittedly short life, spoiler alert, Philip's lens of focus will have most certainly shifted, because although he had shown his willingness to and heed the advice of his local council in local matters, When it came to the issue of marriage, he was still his father's son, and marriage was one area where his father's opinion was going to matter more than anybody else's. But that's all for future episodes of History of the Netherlands. Until then, doee. Thank you for listening to History of the Netherlands. This was an emotional episode for us because. We had to say goodbye to the great privilege. And you know what that means. We must therefore also say goodbye to the great privilege of Patreon. It's been real. But a new year is a new start. And of course, we're not going to say goodbye to Patreon completely. Instead, we must now rename the fantastic way which people support our show. And so we present to you the Intercursus Magnus Patreonus. It's a mutually beneficial trade agreement between listeners who like the show and us who like money. And it sounds like a Harry Potter spell, which nobody should complain about. So let's welcome the newest participants in the Intercursus Magnus Patreonis, Damien Sherman, who we are going to call Ian Bell, and figure that if he cares, he can go and research why. Thank you very much for your support. We love your work, Belly. Daniel D. Tift, Squabbles could not do this without you and then of course nestor Vazquez bernard who i'm going to go out on a limb and guess from that name is spanish and i'm also going to guess nestor that you're getting really excited about the fact that we are soon going to spend many episodes butchering the pronunciation of many spanish names so we may as well start with you nestor Vazquez bernard the loch ness monster thank you very much and then, of course, there's Rainier van Murek. Well, out of interest, we just searched the origins of the name Rainier and found that it is the Dutch form of a Germanic masculine given name, Ragineri, composed of the two elements, Regen, which means advice, and Hetty, which means army. Rainier, the advice army, you are our conseil. Merci, conseil. And finally, Julian, let me ask you a question. What's a pirate's favorite letter? Arr! Nah, the C. Thanks, C. We are gonna call you North. Make sure while it's still there that you follow us on Twitter at History of NL. And of course, check out our show notes and information on the sources on historyofthenetherlands.com. That's it for now. Tot to Falcon keir, and and Muzzle. This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.